Welcome in to another edition of the Wednesday Bible Study. Uh, I'm Rick Burgess. If this is your first time to join us, co-host of the Rick and Bubba Show and director of themanchurch.com. And we're excited that you've decided to join us. Uh, we do this every Wednesday, uh, unless I'm on vacation, but it's, it's most every Wednesday. We've been at it uh, a little over six years, uh, being here from the Rick and Bubba Studios to the Rick and Bubba YouTube channel. Uh, and also, uh, those of you that are listening maybe to the archive today, audio only, on the podcast channel. I uh, want to tell you, too, as far as themanchurch.com, what are we? We are a, a resource or a hub uh, that has uh, everything that you can think of uh, to have an active, uh, uh, ongoing men's discipleship strategy or men's ministry. If you're a church and uh, you'd love to, to look at our strategy, you'd love to access our curriculums, our individual resources, uh, we, we would love to help you. Uh, at last, as we start this Bible study, uh, there's 123 different churches uh, all over the country and even into the Bahamas and Canada uh, that, are, that are doing the men's discipleship strategy in some way, shape, or form, if not implementing the entire thing. We, we have a turnkey option available to you uh, that your entire year uh, can be taken care of, uh, and your, your men will be in an environment of high challenge, but also high equipping. Uh, so would love to talk to you. If you'd like to kind of look at some churches that are doing our, our men's discipleship strategy, it, it, in, it includes conferences, it includes uh, men's gatherings, and then, of course, it includes curriculum and resources for men's small groups. If you'd like to come out and kind of kick the tires and see some of these services or conferences or find out more about what we're doing, uh, you know, to be in a room and see what's going on, uh, here are some dates that are coming up um, the, o- over the the next 60 days. Uh, we're going to be in Columbus, Mississippi, Montgomery, Alabama, Gadsden, Alabama, Warrior, Alabama, Off, Alabama. Uh, we'll be in McGee, Mississippi, uh, Lindale, Georgia. Uh, we'll be in uh, Shelby, Alabama, Cleveland, Tennessee, uh, Colquitt, Georgia. Uh, we'll be in Huntsville. Uh, I mean, you, you, you just you can just go on and on looking at some of these dates. Uh, so go to BurgessMinistries.com, BurgessMinistries.com, uh, and you'll see those events, and then then find one that may be near you, and we would love for you to join us. Some of them are ticketed. Uh, some of them are free. Uh, some require registration, but they're still free. Uh, some don't. Uh, you'll just have to check all the individual links that we have there for you uh, to find out uh, what how the one operates that's nearest to you or the one you want to, to attend. I do want you to know something this. I'm going to let you in on something behind the scenes. My wife and I have been married for 25 years today. On February the 10th, uh, that's when we're doing this live, uh, Sherry and I were married uh, through the premarital uh, counseling. Uh, We both became followers of Jesus, uh, solidifying our faith, being redeemed, and then entering into holy matrimony 25 years ago today. And my wife and I will be doing a marriage conference in Pensacola, Florida uh, at Olive Baptist Church uh, where Ted Trailer, of course, is the pastor there. Uh, that's coming up on August the 14th. I kind of want to make a note of that. I get a lot of emails and people saying, is, is there a marriage conference that you and Sherry will be doing together at some point? And we don't, we don't do that all that often. I go out and speak a lot more with men's events than my wife does with women's events or, or us together. So uh, this, this is not an opportunity that comes around an awful lot because of other commitments my wife has. Uh, studying right now, earning a degree, and also some of the writing that she's doing. So Sherry and I will be together, Olive Baptist Church, Pensacola, Florida. There's no link to that yet, 
at BurgessMinistries.com, but I just want you to make, aware, make you aware of that. As soon as we have the link, I think Shane and Shane's going to be doing the worship. I'll get that link to you, and then you go ahead and secure your spot for you and your wife or you and your husband to join us. I'd love for you to do that in beautiful Pensacola, Florida. So be paying attention for updates on that. Okay. All right. So also, uh, if you want to follow themanchurch.com, uh, follow the Man Church on social media. You can just go and look for that. Uh, you can also follow Burgess Ministries on social media as well. And, of course, the Rick and Bubba Show. So let's open up in a word of prayer, and let's dive into our ongoing study of this great work by J.I. Packer, Knowing God. And today we will discuss the majesty of God. Lord Jesus, uh, we submit to your authority in everything. We thank you for redemption. I, I think about my marriage today, Lord. Thank you for using uh, this, this, this holy matrimony uh, to the former Sherry Bodine uh, to make her my wife 25 years ago today. And what a gift she has been. Your redemption and giving her to me as my wife uh, are the two things that I just celebrate today. Uh, help us to unpack your word and get to know not just about you, but to get to know you, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Uh, in your name we pray, amen. All right, so if you, you have the book, uh, Knowing God by J.I. Packer, but if you're new, here's the concept. Uh, J.I. Packer makes a, makes a good point. Uh, we, can, we can not know God at all. Uh, we can know a lot about God. Uh, and in both these scenarios, even the one where we, we pursue to know a lot about God, we can know a lot about God, and that can sometimes be no different than not knowing God at all because you can know about God and still not really know God. It's all about what is this pursuit? Is it a pursuit of knowledge about God to have right answers, or is it a pursuit of truly knowing God? And God does not hide himself from us. So, so today we, we, we walk through this, this study on all these different characteristics and attributes of God, and today we'll talk about the majesty of God. I think one of the things that, that I have been guilty of um, I think many times uh, the modern-day church, especially in the West, can be guilty of. And this is this ongoing process of trying to, uh, for lack of a better term, dumb God down uh, to make him smaller uh, than he really is. Now, I think, in my own personal opinion, I think this big man upstairs stuff and uh, you know, the, just referring to him in very general, sometimes human ways, uh, I, I watched a message the other day where I, uh, someone sent me and I saw the pastor refer to God as we serve a cool God, you know, which that might be appropriate if I'm in second grade. Uh, but as a 56-year-old man, this doesn't sound like the God of the Bible that we serve a cool God. God's so cool. Isn't he cool? You know, and then we get into the where Jesus is portrayed as uh, some sort of uh, peace-loving hippie uh, that, uh, you know, we all go out to some commune and, uh, and, and sit around and, and play acoustic guitars and, and sing. Uh, so these are things that I think are a mistake, and J.I. Packer agrees, and I think these are things that keep us from knowing God, but I also think there's another, and maybe subconscious, uh, or it may be conscious. I think we do this because if we can take God's majesty and push it down and make it smaller than it really is, it makes him easier to sin again. Um, and um, and he's he's nothing to be feared or dread or he's nothing to be in awe of. Well, today we're going to talk about this because the, the English word, the majesty of God, if you go to the Latin, 
It really means greatness. The, the Latin word we're getting in English, the majesty of God from, that Latin word means God's greatness, his greatness. And, and let's, let's talk about, you know, since it is God's word, and God's word is a really big deal. Uh, I remember when I was uh, so foolish uh, to have no interest in the Bible or to, to pretend to have an interest, you know, to be appropriate. But honestly, having all this interest and, oh, man, this, uh, you got to read this. Uh, this author, Tom Clancy's come out with this new, this new book. Or, you know, over here, some of you that obsess over the Harry Potter stuff, whatever that woman's name is. You know, uh, hey, she's got a new book out. You go over there and you do this. These authors that we're just so enamored with, we can't wait to read their next thing. But we have no interest in a book that has been authored by God. It's been authored by the great I am, the beginning and the end. Oh, so God's the author. Well, I don't know. I just don't know if that'll be interesting, interesting to me. I find that boring. Uh, if, that, if that's the way you see the Word of God, because I did it one time, and I'm embarrassed by that, uh, that's something you need to repent of and kind of rethink. Um, and, and today we're going to give you some examples of that. So look at, look at some of the things that, that the Word of God has to say about this majesty of God and the greatness of our Maker, our Lord, uh, Psalms 93, 1 through 12. And I'm going to show you a trick. If you're, if you're new to studying the Bible, I remember learning this. If you want to get to Psalms, and, and boy, you talk about the majesty of God in the Psalms, just go to your Bible and kind of put your fingers at the midway point and open it. Uh, if you're new to studying the Bible, that'll take you right to the Psalms, and you kind of get all the books of wisdom uh, there in that, that part of the Bible. But in, in Psalms 93, so write that down if you're taking notes, and I hope you do. Psalms 93, 1 and 2, uh, this is what uh, the, the Word of God says about himself. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. Uh, some of your other English interpretations may say, say something different. Robed in majesty. But remember, whatever English word you're seeing here, that the Latin word there, it, it, means, it means greatness. Um, and so are, are the, in, in the Old Testament, the, the Hebrew word you see there. Uh, your throne was established long ago. Uh, look, look at Psalms 145. So this is Psalms 145, verse 5. Psalms 145, verse 5. So look at this psalm. They will speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty, your, your, your greatness, and I will meditate on your wonderful works. Now let's get to the New Testament. Peter is recalling his vision of Christ's royal glory when he saw the transfiguration, when, when Peter saw that, he never forgot. And here's what he said in 2 Peter, which we studied that. We have a study on 2 Peter, First and 2 Peter. If you want to grab that in our archives. 2 Peter 1, verse 16, he says this about the transfiguration. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty, his greatness. Uh, so in, in Hebrews, the phrase, the, the, the majesty uh, twice uh, does duty for God. Christ, we are told, at his ascension, sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, the greatness in heaven. You find the writer of Hebrews talking about this. If you want to jot that down, that's Hebrews 1, verse 3. You'll find it again in Hebrews 8, verse 1. Again, Hebrews 1, verse 3, Hebrews 8, verse 1. So the word majesty, when applied to God, is always a declaration of his greatness, and listen to this, and an invitation to worship. When Scripture starts, look, there, there's nothing 
that I find less worshipful than for some lyric to be thrown at me in some worship song, usually always modern day, uh, the more modern worship songs, that try to make me sing about a God that's less than a God of the Bible. Uh, I, I, I don't sing about a reckless love of God because God's not reckless. Uh, I don't sing about a God that's enamored with me. I sing about a God that I should be enamored with uh, because that, that's what this invitation to worship, the same is true when the Bible speaks of God as being on high and in heaven. Remember, uh, and I've heard Steve Farrar talk about this many times. I, I listen to his Bible study when he's uh, doing them most every week. And one of the things he keeps saying about our fear and trembling you know, of world leaders and, and people that sit on high, he said, remember, human beings may, may be able to be considered to be in high positions, but only God is the most high. And man, when you, when you read some of the things that God says about nations and world leaders, and he, he says, man, they're, they're nothing like me taking my hand in a bucket of water and washing it around. I've declared that the nations compared to me, they're dust, they're emptiness, they're nothing. And so it's, it's always interesting to me, Rick Burgess included, uh, and, and God has changed this about me and is in the process of continuing to change it even more, is I think we need to get right and we need to get right quickly that we need we have these things way out of whack. We fear things that we should never fear, but but yet we have zero fear for the thing that we should fear, and that's God. In his greatness, in his majesty, and, and he is the most high, and he is worthy of our worship. He is worthy to for us to be in awe of him. Go go to Acts chapter two and, and look at Acts chapter two, three, and four there, you'll see that the first church in Acts, it says that the first meetings of the disciples of Jesus Christ, the redeemed, on the other side of the New Testament, it says those gatherings of those the, of the early church, they were constantly and continually in all AWE of God. And frankly, I think in a lot of places of worship that we, that we walk into now, there's not an attempt to bring us into, the, in, into all of God. They're almost trying to do the opposite for us to dumb him down to be more like us. And I think that's blasphemy and a major mistake. So anyway, the thought here about him being on high and in heaven and being the most high is not that God, God is, is, is far distant from us in space, but that he, that he is far above us in greatness. All right, that's important. Don't miss that. When we say that he's on high and he's, he's, he's great and he's the most high, that's not talking about distance between us. Actually, I just talked to a man before we started this Bible study that's grieving, grieving the earthly death of his wife and me celebrating my anniversary today. I was heartbroken for him, and, uh, and I, I reminded him what, what the psalmist also says, I says, hey, man, right now you're brokenhearted, but remember that Scripture says that God is near to the brokenhearted. So this isn't about a distance between us and God. As a matter of fact, because of what Christ Jesus did, we're actually in an, we have access to an intimate relationship with God. However, what these Scriptures are talking about is how far above us in greatness God is. Uh, it's, it's not even close. 
And that's important because sometimes I think we start thinking that we should be worshipped by him as opposed to us worshiping him. That he that he's worshiping us, we're not worshiping him. And I would be real careful because uh, that's part of the fall that we start thinking so much of ourselves and so little of God. So he is to be adored. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. Again, there's, there's another psalm. Uh, that's the psalmist in 48. Write this down. Psalms 48, verse 1. The Lord is the great God, the great King. Come, let us bow down and worship. Here we are in Psalm. We're, we're still in the, in the Psalms. Psalms 95. Uh, that is uh, verse 3. And you'll also find the rest of it in verse 6. So Psalms 95, 3 and 6. The, the, the instinct of the true disciple of Jesus, the true, the true Christian, our instincts of trust and worship are stimulated very powerfully by the knowledge of the greatness of God. That's back to what I just said about the early church. They were, they were in constant worship because they got it. You know, after, after the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church, they were, they were in awe of God. And you would say, well, that's God's presence now being available to us anytime, anywhere, anyplace. Right. But to truly walk into the presence of the one and only living God should stimulate us to bow down and to adore him and to worship him. And if it's causing you or me to have a different attitude, then something's wrong. We're, we're not being ushered into the presence of God. We may be being ushered into the presence of something else. That's important. That's important. So, yes, it's personal. You know, we, 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 we have thoughts of, of greatness uh, about ourselves, but, but we have very small thoughts of God. Um, and, and so when we get into God as personal, I want us to be very, very careful because we're about to talk about personal yet majestic. Personal, yes, but you can't get to the personal part and leave out the great part when it comes to God because sometimes we get the personal part and, and we start thinking, well, it's so personal that God is like us. No, he's not. No, no he's not. Uh, we're in a fallen state. Uh, we, have, we are the created. We are not the creator, and there's a big distance between the creator and the created, a big difference. So sometimes we start thinking to our mind and our minds, well, God's just like us, and he's weak, and sometimes he's inadequate like we are. He's ineffective like we are. He's not flawed like we are. That's incorrect. So, so personal, yes, but you can't have the personal part of God and leave out the majestic part of God. That, be sure you get that balance right, and I'm going to be sure I get it right. We are limited. God isn't. Yes, like us, he can be personal, but unlike us, he's always great. He's always great. So let's, let's unpack that a little bit. So personal, yet, uh, yet uh, still majestic. So nowhere in the Bible is the personal nature of God expressed in more vivid terms. Because um, listen to this, he, he deliberates with himself in the book of Genesis. Now, I want you to think about this. We're being introduced to both personal here, but at the same time majestic, right out of the gate. So if you have your Bible, go to Genesis 126, 
uh, Genesis one twenty six, and you see the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the triune God, three persons, one God, using the term let us, let, let us now begin to, to make man in our own image. He, he brings the animals to Adam to see what Adam will call them in chapter 2, verse 19. That, that's personal. He walks in the garden calling to Adam uh, in Genesis 3, Verse 8 and 9, uh, he asks uh, people questions after he's created human beings. He's asking questions in Genesis 3 at the fall, verses 11 through 13. You see God Almighty asking human beings questions. Uh, in chapter 4, verse 9, you see him asking questions. In, cha- in chapter 16, uh, verse 8, you see God being personal enough to walk in the garden, being personal enough to, to make uh, uh, make us in his image, uh, being personal enough to take the first man ever made and say, you name the animals. Uh, but don't miss the other part of the personal, because we always think the personal is good, and, and I guess it can be, but it can also be bad, because we also see in Genesis chapter 6, verses 6 through 7, let's don't, you remember, this is about knowing God. It's not about knowing just about God, and it's also about knowing God for who he says he is, not who, not who you and I may at sometimes prefer he be. This is very, very important. We accept the God of the Bible, and we accept God's description of himself. No one, not, not what we come up with, but what he says is true. So you remember all these things. You go, I like the hanging out in the garden. I like the getting the name animals. I like the personal conversations. We certainly love his grace, and we certainly love his love. But when you get to Genesis chapter 6, 6 and 7, guess what else we find? He was so grieved by human wickedness that he repents of making us. He regrets that he ever made us. And he goes from however many people were on the earth in Genesis chapter 6, we had become as human beings so wicked, he kills everybody but eight people. So that's God too. And that's we we must we must understand his greatness and the fact that he is gracious, he is loving, but 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 he is also just and he is holy. And we'll find out other things about him in, in the study today. So representations of God like this are meant to bring home to us the fact that God, with whom we have uh, you know, there's not mere mere cosmic principle, impersonal and indifferent. But he is a living person, thinking, feeling, active, approving of good, disproving of evil, interested in the creatures that he created all the time. But we are not to gather from these passages of God's knowledge and power that they're somehow limited because he can also be personal. That's where we make a mistake. Be careful in this personal that you don't start putting human attributes on God, like we said before, like somehow he's ineffective, he makes mistakes, he doesn't have all, all this knowledge, uh, his power is limited to, uh, that he's you know normally absent and so unaware of what's going on in the world, except when it comes to uh, it comes you know to to have some special moment to investigate what's going on. Sometimes he turns it on, sometimes he turns it off. Uh, these 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 same chapters about God's personal side rule out all such ideas by setting before us a presentation of God's greatness no less vivid than that of his personality. 
Yeah, his personality is vivid, but so is his greatness. The God of Genesis is the creator, bringing order out of chaos. That's why I don't like anything to ever be sung about God that gives you some impression that he participates in recklessness and chaos because that's heresy. Okay, God is not reckless. God is not chaotic. God is order. Okay? You know, I know sometimes people like to say things about God they think are provocative because it's never been said. There may be a reason it's never been said, because it's not true. It's not about trying to be provocative, unique, or, or edgy. You better get it right. Okay, so God brought order. He brought that out of chaos, okay? Uh, he called life into being by his word, making Adam from the earth's dust and Eve from Adam's rib. You saw that in chapters 1 and 2. And he is Lord of all that is made. He curses the ground. He subjects mankind to physical death, thus changing his original perfect world order. That's in the fall of mankind in Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 24. He floods the earth in judgment, destroys all life except for those that were on the ark. That's in chapter 6 through 8 in Genesis. He confounds human language, scatters the builders of Babel, uh, that's in Genesis chapter 11. He overthrows Sodom and Gomorrah by apparently some sort of volcanic eruption. That's in Genesis 19. Abraham truly calls him the judge of all the earth. That's in Genesis 18, verses 25. And he rightly adopts uh, you know, the, the, the name for God, God most high maker of heaven and earth. We find that in Genesis 14. He is present everywhere, and he observes everything. He saw Cain's murder in chapter 4, mankind's corruption in chapter 6, Hagar's destitution in chapter 16. Uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, and, and if you remember, Hagar says, you know, calls him the name, the God who sees me. And, 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 uh, and, and of course, you remember when, when Hagar is, is destitute, God comes to her. She calls her son Ishmael. That means God hears, for God does in truth both hear and see, and nothing escapes him. And we got to understand that. I've done this. I've done this too many times. I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed how many times I've done it. I will sing these attributes of God. I will claim these attributes of God, that he is all-knowing, all-seeing, and then for some reason, in my fallen state, on a stumble, I will find myself doing something as if God can't see it. I mean, how ridiculous is that? There's nothing that you do, there's nothing that I do, that God doesn't see, hear, and is present. And I don't know how we do this, and I'm as guilty as anyone, that somehow we'll just turn that switch off. Well, in this very moment right here, I'm going to kind of step outside of, God's ability to know what I'm doing. You see this with the prophets of the Old Testament when they're blaspheming him and they're chasing after other gods and chasing after idols. How many times do you see where God says to the prophet, do they think I don't see this? I know what they're doing. And I think it would do us all some good, it would do me some good to remember that there's nothing or anywhere I can go that's outside of God's ability to know exactly where I am and what I'm doing. Now there's the name that God gives himself, El Shaddai, God Almighty. And all his actions illustrate the omnipotence which this name proclaims.
I am God Almighty. I am omnipotent. He promises Abraham and his wife a son when they're in their 90s, and he rebukes Sarah because he says this laughter, you're laughing at me talking to Abraham about this. I hear you laughing. That's unjustified. Is anything too hard for the Lord? He says to Sarah, you think I can't produce a child from a 90-something-year-old couple? It's nothing to me. What are you laughing about? And it is not only uh, at isolated moments that God takes control of events either. All history is under his sway. Proof of this is given by his detailed predictions of the tremendous destiny which he proposed to work out for Abraham's seed. He tells Abraham exactly what's going to happen. And he has stayed and fulfilled that promise. So the majesty of God um, is right there from the very beginning of Scripture all the way through Scripture. And just because he's personal doesn't mean he's not, that he's any less great. I had to learn that. I had to learn that when uh, uh, one of my sons, um, the first child that Sherry gave birth to, Brooks, uh, nearly died at childbirth because of complications with uh, an abruption. And I prayed and I prayed and prayed for my son and my wife not to die. Uh, and they didn't. And I was praising his holy name. I'd only been a follower of Jesus for three years, so I was so immature and had a lot to learn. But I knew that God was the giver and taker of life, and I was praising his name for choosing life and for giving me my wife and giving me my son when they both could have died. But I heard very clearly, and I would experience nine years later, the Lord saying, if your son and your wife had died, would I then be less great? Do you believe that I'm just in everything that I do? Do you believe that I'm great regardless of how things go for you? Do you trust that I, the Lord God Almighty, know better than you and that you will give me worship regardless of the situation? What in my resume allows you to come against me? So if your son and wife had died, does that make me less great? And, of course, I said no. And then nine years later, he prepared me to not just say that I believe that, but to live that I believe. So now the next thing is, does God have any limitations? There, there, there's no limitations. And this goes into the example I just gave you in my own life. How may we form the right idea of God's greatness? The Bible teaches us two steps that we have to take. The first, and this is kind of what we've been talking about, we must remove from our thoughts of God limits that would make him small. The second is to compare him with powers and forces which we regard as great. Um, these are mistakes. A anything we do to try to see we can comprehend or we're, we're going to set the standard of God, any of that is a mistake. Uh, now let's look at Psalms 139. If, if you have Psalms 139, uh, let, let's, let's take a look at these verses. So in Psalms 139, it's, it's a psalm that, that I refer to a lot. And, and this is the kind of greatness we're talking about in Psalms 139. O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Not some of them, all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it altogether. What? 
So God knows what I'm going to say before I ever say it? Yes. Remember, God lives outside of time. So the thing, and C.S. Lewis talks about this in Mere Christianity, if you want to try to comprehend this, it doesn't take away choices we make. Because in order, because you think, well, if God knows what I'm going to do before I do it, then I don't have a choice. You'd be wrong. What you're trying to do is make God live in past, present, and future. But he doesn't. It's all the same time for him. You understand that? It's like yesterday, today, and tomorrow for him are all happening at once. Does that make sense? So he knows what we're going to say even before we might choose what we're going to say. He knows what it is because he already sees it. So, so you're try- we're trying to make God be limited by, by past, present, and future like we are, but he created time, so he lives above time. So, so, so remember that. That's important. So he says this. He says, Behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You, you hem me in behind and before and, and, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Lord, you're unattainable. I can't, I can't make my mind completely grasp you. You're beyond, uh, uh, David is saying, on what I can even imagine. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where, where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If, if I make my bed in, in, in Sheol, you're, you're there. That was the place of the, the land of the dead, that they believe that's where the dead were. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me uh, be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. And the night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. Now listen to 13 through 16. And we cling to this a lot because I remember having a two-and-a-half-year-old son that died an earthly death in 2008. One of the things that we struggled with is, was his life incomplete? What are the things he didn't get to do? And then... We begin to dwell in these verses. Listen to this, especially if you have someone in your life that has recently passed away, is about to pass away uh, here on earth. Listen to this. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. By the way, this is showing you how God says life begins, and it is at conception. I praise you, for I'm fearfully and I'm wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Listen to this. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Wow. So people really don't live incomplete lives. Some live longer than others. But when it is a death that is under the authority of God, that person's life is complete. It's not incomplete because he knew the number of their days when he wove them together in their mother's womb. I cannot hide anything from the Lord. I can hide my heart 
and my past and my future plans from those around me, but I cannot hide anything from God. I can talk in a way that deceives my fellow creatures as to what I uh, really am, but nothing I say or nothing I do can deceive God. He sees through all my reserve and pretense. He knows me as I really am better indeed than I even know myself. There's nothing about you and there's nothing about me that we can hide from God. We can deceive other people, but not, not God. He's never deceived. He knows exactly who you are. He knows who I am, which is why when we talk about redemption, somebody says, well, Rick, how do you know if someone is truly redeemed? Well, the only way I know is to watch the fruit that they produce, but honestly, I don't know the sincerity of someone's heart, but God does. So if you're sincere and no one thinks you're sincere, but God knows you are, fine. But if you're pretending to be sincere and you're not, well, God knows that too. Living becomes an awesome business when you realize that we spend every moment of our life in the sight and the company of an omniscient, omnipresent creator. I mean, that ought to fire us up. And then we talk about this as well, about, uh, about, his, um, uh, his, about having no limitations. Do you remember the story of Job? Um, uh, it, when you apprehend the greatness of God, realize how unlimited are, are his wisdom and his presence and his power. When you go to Job, and, and this is through the chapters of 38 and 41, 38 and 41 in the book of Job, write those down. You can go read them for yourself. We don't have time for that here. But in these chapters, God himself, takes up uh, you know this the, what, what Elihu says that, that that's God's terrible majesty uh, in, in verses in chapter 37 verse 22 that's where this phrase comes from uh, Elihu who's talking with job refers to God's terrible majesty meaning his feared greatness and then he sets before job a tremendous display of his wisdom and power in nature and God then steps in when job finally, starts to get annoyed with what's going on with him, and he asks Job a question that I think we all need to ask ourselves. He says to Job if he can match his greatness. This is in chapter 40 of Job. Look at verses 9 through 11, chapter 40 in Job. Job starts to complain about the situation he's in, that God's allowed, and we see that God's allowed it. He even placed the limitations on Satan, what he could and couldn't do. And he's refining Job into more intimate relationship with him through pain and suffering, which is one of the reasons that we do have pain and suffering. It's designed to put us in a more intimate relationship with God so that we see his majesty and we realize how wonderful he really is. And nothing does that if you'll, if you'll pay attention quite like pain and suffering. Because we know that Job says after his pain and suffering that he had seen the Lord before he'd only heard of him. And once he saw him, and he understood his greatness, he repented in ashes and, ashes and dust because he realized compared to a holy God, when he saw his true greatness, how sinful he really was compared to God, even though in the beginning of Job he was called blameless and upright, but not compared to God. We all look uh, quite wretched compared to God. And God says, so are you greater than me? And the answer is no. And God gives us resume. In the book of Job, he convinces him since he cannot 
say he's greater than God, that he should presume to find no fault with God's handling of Job's own life, which also goes far beyond a lot of Job's understanding. And we see the same lesson in many scriptures in the Bible, but we don't have for all, time for all those today, but that's probably the most prominent and, uh, and easiest one to make the point. So the next uh, deal we have to understand, so, so we got to understand that God is personal, but yet still majestic. He has no limitations, and really, we can't really comprehend him. He, he's, he's, he's impossible to fully comprehend uh, get your Bible and let's go to Isaiah, uh, Isaiah chapter forty, Isaiah chapter forty. You see, you see Isaiah dealing with this in chapter forty, and this is a a beautiful chapter of all the things that uh, that that Isaiah talks about about how difficult it is to comprehend God. Uh, here, God speaks to the people whose mood is the mood of many Christians today. Uh, Isaiah is trying to talk to 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 God's people, and they become despondent. Uh, they they become cowed down, uh, they're they're in despair, um, and so um, uh, God begins to say these things to them. He says, "Look at the task that I have done." He says, "Could you do them? Could any man do them? Who has measured the waters and the hollow of his hand, uh, or, or has taken uh, the breadth of his hand and marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket?" Are weighed the mountains on scales and the hills in balance. We see this now. This is I'm speaking of the greatness of God, which starts in chapter nine, I mean verse nine of chapter forty, and then it goes on. Uh, what I just did about him measuring the waters in the hollow of his hand uh, is in verse twelve, uh, and and you continue to to read on. I know right now, like a lot of us, we're just. I mean, we are. We can't. We can't believe ourselves on how worried we are about what's going to happen to our nation and what about all the nations of the world and what about China and what about this and, and what about that and, and the nations and the nations and the politics. Oh, my goodness, Lord, we're in such despair. Look what the Lord God Almighty says about the nations. Isaiah 40, verse 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales, behold, I take up the coastlands like fine dust. Look at verse 17. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. You know, let me tell you how much God is impressed with a nation. None. Let me tell you how, how much God fears uh, earthly rulers. He doesn't. They're all under his hand, and he can wipe them out. He has to give them permission to take their next breath. So why don't we drop the drama and remember who we serve? I mean, we serve the Most High. We serve the, the majestic God. No, no one can have any greatness that even remotely compares. He takes Nebuchadnezzar. When Nebuchadnezzar walks out there and says, Look at all I've, look at Babylon. Look at everything that I've done like that. God removed his hand from him. And the next thing you know, Nebuchadnezzar, this great king, is crawling around on, the, on, the, on all fours eating grass like a, like, a, like a beast. This is how little God is impressed with the things that we seem to be so impressed with. These nations are nothing 
to him. And then look next at the world. Consider the size of it, the variety and the complexity of it. Think of the nearly 5,000 millions who populate it uh, and all the vast sky above it, what puny figures you and I are by comparison with the whole planet on which we live. Yet, what is this entire mighty planet by comparison with God? Think about how puny we are compared to the whole earth. The whole earth is just as puny, if not more so, compared to God. He sits enthroned. This is also in Isaiah uh, 40. Look at, look at verse 22. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, flat, earther, flat earthers, by the way, who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretch out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. God is not impressed. The world is his footstool above which he sits secure. He's greater than the world and all that is in it. So let's look forth at the what we call great one. So, so we know that, uh, that we, we can bring no, no charge against him. We know the nations are nothing to him. We know the world is nothing to him. What about the great ones of the world? The governors who laws and policy determine the welfare of millions that would be the would-be rulers, the dictators, the empire builders, the presidents um, who have in their power to, uh, to, to plunge the globe into war. And you can think of all the list of these. I, I mentioned Nebuchadnezzar, Napoleon, Hitler, Stalin, uh, Pol Pot, um, uh, Reagan, Clinton, uh, Biden, Trump, all, all the list of this. Saddam Hussein. Do you suppose that it is really these top men who determine which way the world shall go? <laughs> Think again. For God is greater than the world's great men. Look at verse 23 of Isaiah 40, as I said it again. Who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. He is the only ruler. But there's more that makes him impossible to comprehend. He is greater than, than, than any task that has ever been done. He's greater than any nation. He's greater than the world. He's greater than the rulers of the world. He is the Most High. He's also greater than all the stars that we can see. Think about this. Lift your eyes to look to the heavens. Who created all of these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. So every single star that you can see, he has put each and every one of them exactly where they are. It's God who brings out the stars. It's God who first set them in space. He is their maker. He is their master and they are all in his hands and subject to his will. Such are his power and majesty. Behold the one and only living God. Oh, we make God too small. Why do we continue to try to make God so small? So what's our response to this? Who will you compare him? 
So, so we think about this. My response would be, do I have anything I can compare to what I just heard and what I just read in Scripture about God? Our thoughts are not great enough. Our thoughts of God are too human. We are too limited to grasp His greatness. You can't do it. Any thought that you have of God that you think you can communicate, it's not enough. It's too small. Yes, He's personal. That's what makes it so wonderful. But we, we must also comprehend His greatness, and we should be in awe of Him. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. He is omnipresent. And there's nothing that compares to Him. We need to also correct our thoughts about ourselves. You know, when we think about that God is so vast, here's what we can't do. Start thinking that this is, again, like we said earlier, a distance between us and him. He's not with me. He's abandoned me. No, no. Hey, be ashamed of a thought like that. If, if you feel abandoned by God, he has not abandoned you. You've abandoned him. Because he is omnipresent. He is not far from us at all. His presence, even in this fallen creation, is everywhere. When he gave us the Holy Spirit, if you've been redeemed, his presence is with you. That's that supernatural comfort that you should feel. That's that conviction you should feel when things do not please him. If you think God has abandoned you, that is not of God. That's been, that's been whispered in your ear by something evil. So if you have that thought, be ashamed of it, repent of it, and remove it. Because that is not of the Lord. Number three, get it right. Stop being so slow to believe in God's majesty. Look at Isaiah 40 again. Let's look at verse 28. Listen to this. Have you not known God? This is, this is the word of God. Have you not known? Have you not heard the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Have you not heard? God is saying, do you not know me? Have you not heard about me? Are you not aware of me? Have you not attempted to, to, to make some effort to grasp me? If you're not in awe of me and you don't find me to be great, says the Lord, then you must not know me. You must not know me. So this is where we got to kind of wrap it up today because then we have to start thinking like this. So if I'm not in awe of God, if I do see him as the big man upstairs and I do think that he's reckless and inadequate and makes mistakes and grows weary, then I don't know him. Then I, and then I don't really know him. Because I'm telling you, once I ushered myself into the presence of the living God and the more that I continue to search his word 
in his revelation about himself. The more wretched I realize I am compared to him, which also makes me appreciate and love him more because of the grace that he's afforded me. When I, when I see what he is, it breaks my heart that I've ever sinned against him. Because I, I got news for you. He's worthy of worship. He's worthy of praise. He's worthy of devotion. He is not worthy of being sinned against. So for me to sin against him is wretched because of how wonderful he is. Do you know, God, that are these, these attributes that we just talked about, are these things that are resonating with you? Are you in awe of God? If you treat him with, with so little regard, then the odds are probably not. If you don't feel a desire to worship him, probably not. If you're not in fear of him, of being on the wrong side of him, then, then probably not. If you don't love him, then you don't know him. And if you feel abandoned and hopeless and helpless, and you think this whole world is out of control, and he has somehow either died or stepped away and is no longer above all this, then you're mistaken. Rest easy knowing that God is exactly who he says he is. And just like we said last week, he has never changed. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this reminder today. You are the only one to truly be called great. How silly it is for us to worship the wrong things, to be impressed with celebrities, to be impressed with people who think they're so powerful, to be impressed with things of this world, and then not be impressed with you. How embarrassing. How embarrassing that is. Thank you, Lord, for the correction today. You know, I don't know, Lord. I, I, I don't know if there's people watching this or listening to this. or It's just you and me right now. But um, I repent of any sin I've ever had against you. Forgive me for the times that I have not treated you as great and holy and omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent. These characteristics can only be said about you. You are holy, I am not. But thank you, Lord, for the redemption that you've afforded me to become truly righteous because you had to come to me because I was unable to come to you. Thank you for giving me life, allowing me to take another breath. And, Lord, help me to be in the middle of your perfect will for my life. And, Lord, if there's anybody out there who's, who are listening to this or maybe they're watching this, I don't even know how they got there, but you ushered them into this so you could speak to them today about yourself. Lord, if I can help them in any way, please have them reach out to me or just simply submit to you today and repent of their sins and ask for the forgiveness that only you can give because you are holy and you are just and you are loving and you are gracious. But you will also bring wrath against the unredeemed because anyone in sin without redemption, they oppose you. 
and you are not to be opposed. May we be in awe of you, Lord. In your name, the name above every name, we pray. Amen. Thank you for our time. Uh, thanks for giving this time to us today. I hope that you benefited from it. If I can help you, rick at rickandbubba.com.